Happy New Year, fam! <laughs> I hope 2024 is starting off well for y'all. And for our replay fam, who may or may not be anywhere near the beginning of 2024, hey to you too. I'm still glad you're here because today we're chatting with Dr. Christine Durso and reclaiming hope for families. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family, the CD family that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Alrighty, so greetings once again and welcome to a brand new year, fam. For me, it's, it's kind of hard to believe that it's already 2024, but I hope everyone enjoyed their holidays for those whom observe and... For many, the holiday season is a time to reflect on the end-of-year reviews leading into the new year with new beginnings, a fresh page, a new chapter, resolutions, vision boards, oh. But for some of you, you're barely surviving. Holidays are painful, and even getting through the day can feel sometimes insurmountable. So wherever you fall on that spectrum, know that you're seen, you are valued, and trust y'all. You're not alone. So thanks for joining us here, fam. We get together here every Friday, and there's always room for you and our crew. So today I'm joining you from the Sunshine State, otherwise known as Florida. And for the international fam, each of the 50 states here in the U.S. had their own little nickname, a flag, a bird. And Florida is the Sunshine State. Many of my in-laws now live here, and so we are doing our belated Christmas visit. But speaking of Florida, I have to tell you guys a funny-to-me story from this past New Year's Eve, okay? So my handsome hubs and I were going to get together with some friends, but they were not feeling super well by the time New Year's Eve came around, and we're getting sick, and we were getting ready to travel, and we just decided to lean into some, like, adulting and stay at home. So after we put the kids to bed, and that would definitely be before midnight, because as we'll talk about a bit in today's episode, fam, y'all got to treat yourself. And I'm telling you, keeping kids up late and then dragging their sleep deprived selves onto an airplane is fun for no one. So we rewarded ourselves with a quiet night in. And naturally, I think I fell asleep approximately four minutes into our chill time. Because we just got through holidays and all the holiday things and now we're preparing for all the traveling things and I'm old enough. Old enough. <laughs> so I fell asleep and my hubs woke me up and we poured like two tablespoons of champagne because we were exhausted and we're going to basically just go right back to sleep until the ball dropped. But we have one of those frame TVs where you can pick different artwork or pictures or drawings or whatever and it looks like framed art. 
but you press a button and it magically becomes a TV where you can stream things, etc. And Samsung, who created this TV, has like its own basic TV channels where you can watch things live, which is kind of novel to us because we basically stream, if anything. We don't have cable. I barely even know if anything is on, but you know, it's New Year's Eve. So we threw up the New Year's Eve broadcast where they show Times Square in New York. And I'm barely taking in any of this because other than seeing that Kia and Planet Fitness are obviously advertisers at this event, we caught nothing, <laughs> more or less, except we did catch a wee little bit of Flowrida's act. Now, Flowrida is a rapper. He's a musical artist. And I, I have to say, I, I will just be honest, I feel progressively older and older anytime I catch a New Year's Eve broadcast, like within the last 10 years, because I know none of it. I've never heard of any of these people. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you probably like seven different content creators versions of Wheels on the Bus. And I will say my kids are getting old enough that life isn't all about Dave and Ava, Baby Bum or Coco Melon. But my music acuity low-key sucks at this point. And so I know nothing. I admit that. So Florida is performing and I don't know what any of it is. But then he does a throwback. He and his crew there, they do a throwback to the age-old classic, a tale, if you will, about a lady with an affinity for flared denim and the boots with the fur. <laughs> and as luck would have it, I was in some baggy sweat pants, sans the Reeboks with the flaps. But that old song, Low, for those of you not familiar with it, came on and my husband and I are both watching this. And then he said, wait, this is Florida? And I'm like, what? It's Florida. And he said, no, look. And he points to the banner where Florida is written in font that is, I don't know, shall we say somewhat compressed together? And it looks like Florida performs. And I don't know why, but this just got us really tickled because we're old and tired. And so we're laughing and we think we just like discovered this really funny thing. Oh my gosh, this looks like it says Florida. Florida's performing. But as some Florida fans may actually know, Florida is in fact from Florida. And so it's like a little clue, <laughs> a little Easter egg, wouldn't you know? He's Florida from Florida. Very clever. So I am like, I don't even know, maybe at this point, decades late to this joke, but we're laughing about how this looked like a thing. And in fact, guess what? Uh, joke's on us. It was intentionally a thing. So I don't know, maybe had to be there, but this, this has set off our 2024 in a superb direction of just <laughs> learning how to see the obvious before us. So now here we are in Flow Ride a Country, enjoying a really lovely visit with family. And sometimes things are like right in front of us and we don't see it. And then we do see it. And then we're like, oh, I see that thing. It's a joke, right? And then we're like, no, that was supposed to be that thing, right? And it's like, how could I miss this? And it actually ties in well to what we're talking about today. Because today, fam, we're talking about you, me, us. We're talking about how together we can share wins or winces. And when it comes to OCD, often all of us are lassoed in to the pain that OCD brings. But we're also talking about how the power in the family, you, me, us, we 
can also be such a beacon of hope and strength in the treatment and recovery process. And so today we're going to talk about this idea that we refer to as family accommodation. It's funny because as I was thinking about family accommodation, I got to thinking about this old quote by the writer George Bernard Shaw. And in the quote, he says, if you cannot get rid of the family skeleton, you may as well make it dance, end quote. And I love this because sometimes managing something as intrusive as OCD can feel like the skeleton, this intrusive, dark, shame-filled thing. But this quote totally gives me ERP vibes in the best possible of ways, akin to the feels of if you can't beat them, join them. And yet, very different still, because guess what? We actually have OCD's playbook. It's called Decades of Research, and it tells us a different story. Because it turns out making the skeleton dance, as it were, and learning you can do you boo with or without that skeleton, it's life-giving. So if you're new to this journey or even new to the acronym ERP and you're like, ERP vibes, what's that? Stay tuned because we have such a skilled and compassionate expert in all things family accommodation and ways to reclaim hope with Dr. Christine Durso. So let me tell you just a little bit more about Christine and then we'll get right to it. Christine is an assistant professor in psychiatry at the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell. And if Northwell sounds familiar to you, it may be because she works with Dr. Anthony Pinto, our friend and learned expert on all things OCD and OCPD, which is Obsessive Compulsive Personality Disorder. And we just wrapped up a really lovely Q&A with Anthony about a month ago on OCPD, but he has been a repeat guest here and will continue to be welcome to our family gatherings as we garner more hope and understanding for our warriors. So I actually met Christine through Anthony, and I knew I just had to have her come on and share about the amazing work that she is doing through Northwell Health's OCD Center once I heard more about her family OCD groups. So she created this program and has co-led it for over four years at this point, and it's a group for patients 17 and older and their family members. So she is here to tell us more about some of the incredible gains and phenomenal work families are doing because this is you, fam, and this is helpful information. This is the power and the strength of loved ones and chosen family. And so enough of my jabbing because we need to welcome Christine in here. And I know that you are going to love hearing more. Well, welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast, and I am so pleased today to welcome Dr. Christine Durso, who is working at the Northwell Health OCD Center, Zucker Hillside Hospital. And Christine, you and I were able to get together, grab a cup of joe at the conference last year, and I'm just so grateful to have you here today. Thank you for coming on. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. Now, Christine, we got set up for our little coffee rendezvous by the one and only Dr. Anthony Pinto. And you work with Dr. Pinto. And you guys at Northwell, you not only treat OCD, but you also work with OCPD, as well as a number of just mental health disorders that can cluster together. So it was really sweet. I liked that he was like, I can't be there, but you guys can get together. (laughs) I know that was so lovely. It's like, I'd love to get coffee with you, but I can't. So 
please meet with Christine instead. And it was wonderful. It's like going to adult summer camp when you're at the conference because you see colleagues and friends that you've made over time and you're all gathered together and it's all the rich content that that we get to share and have the privilege of disseminating out to folks, to the families, to the loved ones suffering with these different really debilitating mental health disorders. So I'm so glad you could come today. And the main topic that we're talking about today is one of the things that you guys target really well. And we're talking about family accommodation. So targeting family accommodation when we're dealing with OCD is very complex and it's very overwhelming for a lot of families. And some of the fam here are going to be like, yep, we know, we know family accommodation well. Some folks are going to be like, what, family, what? I don't know. Like, they're just in triage state. So can we start? And I know this is, we don't need to spend a lot of time on this because granted, this is what we talk about a lot. But just for new fam coming in, can we just do a real brief overview of OCD and why family accommodation matters when we think about treatment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, of course, with OCD, we're talking about obsessions. So these repetitive, unwanted thoughts, urges, or mental images, they cause anxiety or distress. And of course, we know there are various themes. And then we have compulsions, these repetitive mental or observable behaviors in response to the obsession. And there are so many different types. We've got mental compulsions, including mental review, rumination, so figuring out looking back and trying to get certainty. And then, of course, checking, cleaning, seeking reassurance is a huge one, very relevant to family accommodation. Yeah. And and then we've got the family accommodation. You know, it is such an important topic because research shows that truly in one study found 90% of participants in this study reported some form of family accommodation of that OCD. And wow. so, yeah. And, and so this family accommodation really is any way that the family member is playing a role in the maintenance of OCD through their own behaviors, which are often well-meaning. And it'll be really interesting to get more into how fascinating it is because family members are genuinely desperate to help their loved ones feel better and we'll talk about how their actions are truly worsening the suffering of their family members. And so this includes taking part in compulsions, hiding or removing triggers, permitting avoidance of anxiety-provoking stimuli, changing up their own routines to accommodate compulsive routines within the OCD, and of course, the big one, providing direct and indirect reassurance. Yeah. And uh, this is going to be a really interesting conversation because I think in the beginning of the process and even depending on how long OCD has been on the scene, the stat is 14 to 17 years since the start of symptoms that people find therapy often. And so you can think like most of my loved one's life, they've been dealing with it. Most of our relationship has involved OCD budding into the relationship. So sometimes it's hard to even spot the direct in the beginning for folks because it's been so ingrained, but also that indirect. So that is going to be really an interesting conversation. And, you know, what I want to say for family, too, is 
it's such a hard realization when we think, oh my gosh, everything I'm doing to try and help. And I shouldn't paint with a broad stroke. It's not everything you're doing. But a lot of the responses, and I'm trying to help this person that is debilitated by OCD, could also be reinforcing that. That's, that's really hard for folks. But if you think about it, it's not that different than for the sufferer who has started and engaged in compulsions along the way, well-meaning themselves. A lot of times I substitute the phrase safety behaviors for compulsions because that's generally how they start. Like I'm trying to, like best interest, want to keep people safe, want to keep others safe, keep me safe. And so I start in these compulsions. And so the fact that family can get absorbed into that and play a role in that, I think it can't be highlighted enough. We see that you are just loving this person that's terrified the best thing you can. And yet OCD, such a jerk, OCD, wants to jump in there and hijack that love that you're trying to give to your loved one and using it to help reinforce OCD. So this isn't like a gotcha, shame on you moment, y'all. It is so incredibly understandable and so incredibly tricky. And that's why it's so helpful to have an outside perspective or a therapeutic team be able to come in and go, okay, you get to still love your person 100%. Let's see how we can change this so your person gets your love, not the OCD. And so I love, I love just the way you were able to describe that. And when we think about treatment, so we have a couple evidence-based treatments. One of the more prominent is, especially here in the U.S., ERP, that's Exposure and Response Prevention. If you've been around for a minute, you've heard about ERP. But again, we're not going to go into super, super depth. But just for new folks, new fam that is tuning in, can we just do a broad overview? Because the idea of family accommodation and treatment with ERP has such a strong impact on prognosis that I think just giving a little bit of an overview on ERP might be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And so when we're talking about exposure, we are leading the patients in facing their fears gradually. And we are, of course, as we're having them face their fears, we are having them gradually stop their compulsive behaviors with the goal of having them increase their tolerance for anxiety, for discomfort, increase their ability to notice an urge, for example, to ask for reassurance and remind themselves, I can do this, right? It feels really uncomfortable right now, but I can get through this, right? I can let this anxiety be here. I don't need to get that answer. I can ride this out and I can do this so that I can live my value, right? And so with exposure and response prevention, we're really coaching these patients to get their lives back and face avoided situations and objects and activities and really be able to engage in them without responses that might give them some short-term feeling of anxiety reduction, but in the long run are maintaining the anxiety. And that's why it's so important to get the family members on board, because if we are trying to get our patients to stop compulsive behaviors and family accommodation is actually reinforcing compulsive behaviors, 
then we've got an issue. And it is so amazing, Nicole, how many times we've had patients really struggling with engagement in ERP. And once we assess and we find there is so much family accommodation happening at home, and we get the family members on board in a really validating, collaborative way, it's incredible to see the progress with, just like you said before, the patient, the family member united together against OCD. Instead of that patient trying to fight the OCD family member, really angry at the patient and the OCD is getting involved and it just becoming really hostile, for example, and not effective. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, family accommodation is it's basically a compulsion, right? The mm -hmm. response prevention is something that has to be learned across the board. And I think this is where it gets tricky because some folks may have had therapy in the past. Some folks may even be in the research world or the treating world. And historically, anxiety disorders respond beautifully to exposure therapy. There's a lot of research out there. And the idea is if I get into a situation where I'm heightening in distress and I'm able to get out of that distress in the moment, then I only learn that, yes, this is the thing I need to be scared of. In typical exposure therapy, what you do is as you're exposing yourself, you realize, oh, I did increase in that anxiety, but then it wasn't so bad the longer I stayed with it. And then my brain starts to learn and realize, oh, yeah, like that thing isn't so bad. And we start to see a decrease in the amount of intensity around whatever we're exposing ourselves to. With OCD, it's really tricky because when we're staying in that intensity and we're doing the exposure, which is half of the battle, response prevention. And this is where I think even clinicians sometimes can miss the mark on response prevention. It is trickier, but it's really the name says it all. It's preventing a response, right? It's preventing the response that you would do while you're hanging in that distress. And so because what we've learned, especially from an ERP, and again, ERP is our acronym for exposure and response prevention, is that actually it's those responses, those coping mechanisms, the safety behaviors that are functioning to minimize, neutralize, or avoid the distress brought about by the trigger is actually reinforcing that learning in the brain and keeping that person stuck in that OCD thought loop in those compulsive cycles. And so response prevention is a huge piece worth noting here because that's what we're doing as family members. As we're practicing, we're going to go through exposures and life's going to bring them about. Maybe we're going to intentionally set one up, but it's our job to hang with the response prevention. And that's really hard. So can we talk maybe just a little bit more about, I know you did a really nice overview, but I think because people get tripped up on response prevention, can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And so like you said, response prevention is essentially not doing any sort of compulsive behavior that will give you in the moment a feeling of certainty, a feeling of control, a feeling of decreased anxiety, right? And instead, being mindful in that moment and acknowledging this is really terrifying, right? My brain is screaming at me, telling me there's an emergency, do something, right? I'm supposed to be doing this ERP where I'm just 
not doing my normal response that gives me that immediate relief, right? But just like you said, the beauty is that if you continue consistently doing the exposure with response prevention, so you are engaging with that stimulus and you are just sitting with it and you're not getting reassurance, you are not reassuring yourself that nothing bad will happen. You're not trying to figure out if something bad will happen. Then over time, you're teaching your brain, you know what? You're wrong. This is not emergency. This is not a terrible situation that I cannot tolerate. And it's really amazing because over time, you start challenging that belief too that you can't tolerate difficult things, right? And that, of course, you are teaching your brain that this thought or urge or mental image is not dangerous, right? So you're you're learning a different relationship here. And, And again, when we can get the family on board and we have them staying strong with their anti-accommodation, essentially anti-compulsion response prevention, then we are over time really strengthening our ability to tolerate hard things. And we're teaching the brain these unwanted experiences might not be comfortable, but they are tolerable and they can be there. Yeah. And so I think you said that really well. And just to highlight that, that really kind of the meat of this conversation is that new learning can be created in the brain, right? When we prevent that response and we just realize that we can live, we can do our things. We don't have to sacrifice ourselves to the OCD, but we're really strong. Your loved one is super strong. You're really strong and we can get through this. So an example of that might be my loved one really has a hard time with opening the doors. And I know that parents or spouses, we choose our battles, right? And and partners and all of that. And so we say, oh, it's not a big deal. I'll open the door because it's so stressful for them. And also I want to get in the house and I don't want to go through the whole hubbub, right? So I start by opening the door. Well, you can see for somebody maybe that's struggling with, say it's contamination OCD, or say it's something that's seemingly unlinked. Maybe it's somebody's health. I had this thought that if I open the door, they could die. Well, then there would be a lot of urgency and need to not open the door, right? But we can't go through lives not going through doors. Some people are like, hey, man, I know. Trust me, we've been working on that. And so you see how something as simple as like, ah, we really got to get going. I'm just going to open the door for them is engagement. And it's still meeting that compulsive need for them to not touch that door. And so family accommodation can get real tricky because it slides in there. It's something real easy. Just I'm just going to open the door. And it can really even build from there. This is a great opportunity to pivot in and zoom in a bit more on what family accommodation is. Again, how our participation in meeting that compulsory need can be reinforcing to the obsession. But at the same time, like Christine said, in terms of creating that new learning, here's the power, right? Because not only does your loved one have the ability to create that new learning by not engaging in the compulsion, so do you. You have the ability to help create that environment that is not going to reinforce that. And research is showing us, like there's a lot of good research around space, for example, which is a, a supportive 
program that basically works with family accommodation and ERP. And there's a lot of great research saying, hey, this can be as effective as the person practicing the response prevention piece here as well. So this, this is a great opportunity then to zoom into what is family accommodation exactly and why is it such a big piece of treatment? Well, it can create new learning. I know we've covered that, but would love to hear more on that. Yeah. And so, you know, the family accommodation, like we said, it maintains OCD because it's the family members engaging in compulsions, providing the resources to have compulsions or safety behaviors. So taking part in rituals, changing up the environment, permitting avoidance. Often we'll see family members changing up their own schedules. So very common to have parents or spouses late for work, right? Because they are waiting on their child or their spouse. And of course, providing direct and indirect reassurance. And we'll get into this too, but what I think is so empowering is teaching those family members, essentially they have to do their own ERP, right? Their own exposure to the discomfort of watching their loved ones suffering at times in agony, desperate for that accommodation, begging, crying, screaming, right? And we are teaching those family members to stay strong and to offer tough love and to not back down, right? And to not give that accommodation. Because like you said, opening the door for a loved one is a two-second thing that can just help you literally start your day, but it is providing that literal reinforcement and that also metaphorically is opening the door to the continuation of OCD. Mm-hmm. And accommodation is in so many different forms. I can provide a couple examples yeah. if that's helpful. Yeah, that yeah. would be great. Yeah. So let's say someone who's got contamination-related sears. And of course, in light of COVID the last couple of years, we've also seen a rise of people who have COVID-related obsessions. So we've got family members who might be bleaching the bathroom, coming into the house and immediately taking off their clothes and showering and sanitizing their phone, their wallet, going through a particular routine as if they had OCD. Uh, That is a specific example of a target that we worked on in group, removing sharp knives from the kitchen, right? If someone has a harm-related fear that they feel they cannot be trusted around shop objects. So we might have family members who are doing all the cooking, who are actually locking up their knives so that their loved one with OCD feels some reassurance that they're not going to lose control and harm family members. Of course, taking on loved one's responsibilities in other forms. So I had mentioned cooking, but then of course, childcare might be another one. If a parent has a fear of harming their child, the other parent might be doing a lot more of the childcare censorship. So we've seen a lot of family members not watching certain TV shows, not talking about certain topics, mm-hmm. being extremely careful in not saying the wrong thing that might trigger some anxiety. 
We've also seen a ton of purchasing items used in compulsions. A couple years ago, we had uh, one family in our group where the patient with OCD, the son, really needed some very particular shower products that were also extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. There was the fear that not using these particular products would not ensure that he would be clean enough. And the parents were paying a ton of money for these products, Mm -hmm. which he was all going through very quickly. And of course, participating in a family member's avoidance. So making excuses if they're avoiding social gatherings, not attending family events for fear of the loved one becoming very uncomfortable in that setting. So it's really horrifying just to think about the toll that OCD takes not just on the person diagnosed with OCD, but the family and the friends too, which we'll get into as well. It really becomes a community of folks who are really bogged down by OCD. Yeah. I mean, it really is that parallel process of the world of the sufferer gets smaller and smaller because of the amount of fear and just different rituals and the amount of time it can take up and all the distress. But you also think like as a partner, as a friend, as a roommate, as a family member, also it impacts you so much in terms of this need being so heightened and so distressing. And really the body is going into fight, flight or freeze, right? It's like it is almost panic level, if not panic level. For folks, when they're thinking about facing some of these obsessions, because the obsessions are so, as we would say in ERP language, intrusive. They're so intrusive. They're so unwanted. They're so what we describe as egodystonic. And egodystonic, again, for any of our new fam, is really when you have those feelings, thoughts, urges, images that are so opposite of who you know yourself to be. I like to say it's not it's not like a perfect analogy. It's not like the textbook definition, but I feel like it, it paints a good picture. Egostonic is so distant from who you think yourself to be instead of being egosyntonic. And I always think of sync, and I'm really happy because they're back together for a movie. But uh, sync is lockstep, right? Like we are it's congruent with our values. And so. In terms of having some of these disturbing thoughts, yeah, if you or I thought that somebody could die, wouldn't our adrenaline kick in? Wouldn't we go into some kind of mode to try and protect ourselves, to protect our loved ones? So we can get caught up in that from an OCD sufferer perspective. And they're really, really distressed. So you can see why a family member can, from such a well-intentioned, loving place, start to engage with that because they want to support their loved one and the fear that is very, very palpable and it's very, very present. And so can we expand on that just a little more in terms of why family members then do often, why this is such like a high prevalence? Did you say 90%? Yeah. You know, actually one study I had shown up to 97%. Wow. So, and I... I don't even know that clinicians are always assessing the level of family accommodation. And it's not always clear, right? This is a form of accommodation. It is just really trying to alleviate the suffering. And to that end, even clinicians can get duped. Clinicians that are well experienced in OCD 
can get duped. And so because OCD can be so sneaky, it gets easier to sniff out (laughs) over time. But still, because OCD is as creative as the person's brain and, and we are creative people, it's just so vast how it can show up. And so if anything, folks, if you've gotten caught up in accommodation, be like, gosh, even even clinicians, researchers that are doing this work can get caught up in it every now and then. We're not having like perfect batting averages here with it every time. And so it, it, it happens. Let's look at some questions that you put together. You and another colleague recently presented on this, and I really love these questions because it, sometimes it's hard for family, again, because they maybe have for 10, 20, 30 years had this relationship with their loved one where some of the simple ingrained relational aspects of life have actually also been feeding OCD because we didn't realize OCD was pulling the strings underneath. And so you talk about some ways accommodation can show up in your loved one's OCD and you had a bunch of really interesting questions. So I was wondering if you could share some of those because I think it's really helpful for making it concrete for family members going, but I don't know that I do that. Even if it's really prevalent, I don't think we do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So some questions that we might want to ask family members are, do you do things that you wouldn't do if your family member didn't have OCD? Are you engaging in some sort of behavior or avoidance and uh, you're exclusively doing that to make your family member with OCD feel a little bit better, right? How much time do you spend every day on reducing anxiety for a family member? So that might entail having a patient's mom think throughout the day, how many times am I answering the same question in, in various ways of giving reassurance? checking in on my son, taking extra care with this chore to make sure that my son is happy with the outcome. Yeah. And real quick on that, Christine, if we can help differentiate for folks, because I hear this feedback a lot and I bet you do too, but I'm their mom, I'm their dad, I'm their wife, I'm their husband, I'm their partner, whatever. I want to comfort them. Are you telling me I can't comfort them? Because I reduce anxiety that's comforting them. And what would you say to that piece? Because I think that pops up for folks like, but how do I want them and comfort them? Like you're saying I can't comfort them. Right. And and this is and and this is really why the psychoeducation about OCD, ERP, family accommodation, and the validation is so crucial, right? Because family members are often feeling uh, everything from embarrassed, right? I can't believe I'm doing all these things that are actually worsening the OCD to sometimes feeling invalidated, right? Or feeling attacked, right? This idea of, wow, so I'm not supposed to be a good caring mom who wants to help my son feel better. And so a big part of what we target in group is looking at the relationship, right, between a mother and a son, for example, and helping to redefine what that means, right? So being a great mom could actually mean letting your son in the moment feel that anxiety and not taking it away, right? And then you reminding yourself you're doing this to help your son in the long run, right? And so we do spend a lot of time on conceptualizing what it means to be a supportive parent or spouse, 
So absolutely. It's really, I think, what makes the work so fascinating too. And that's what I love about the multifamily approach that we use because family members are so good at supporting each other. And we love when families who have been in our group longer or kind of the group veterans are, you know, in in a way providing some healthy reassurance, right, to newer families, right? Like, this is really hard. I was in your shoes. I bought the same way. And it gets better. So it's really incredible to see the change. Yeah, I I think that's a really great point because we can redefine comfort and we can still say loving, empathic statements, but we're just not saying it to OCD. We're saying it to a person instead, right? So if I'm saying, no, you're okay to help reduce anxiety, and instead I say something like, you're really struggling and I love you. I'm so sorry this is hard. Instead of instead, then you can still be comforting because sometimes I think people too feel like I can't say anything nice, quote unquote, to my kid and or to my spouse. And you're like, it can feel that way. I totally see how it can feel that way. And no, we absolutely can say loving things to our spouse and loving might be us not acting in something that's going to reinforce OCD for sure. But also loving might be you're the warrior and I'm not going to let OCD take that away from you. Like I'm not going to make OCD stronger because you're stronger and I'm going to encourage you instead of the answer that OCD just says, if they just say it'll be okay, then we'll be fine. Right. And so being able to do that. Okay. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but it just popped up for me because I hear it. I hear it often. I'm sure you do too. And it's it's a grieving process because people are already grieving what OCD has done for their loved one, for their family, for their friendship. And then it feels like an extra kind of like just like hit me while I'm down. I can't comfort. And it's like, no, you can comfort and you love your person so much. So you can absolutely comfort. We're just making sure that OCD doesn't hijack that comfort for its own gaining strength so that your loved one actually can get that comfort. Okay, any other kind of questions that you would ask in terms of how accommodation can sneak in there? Yeah, well, this was a great intro into the next question, right? So what do you say when your family member is distressed, right? So just like you said, Nicole, family members are so used to saying, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. No, you know, you didn't do anything wrong. You're not going to get sick. I'm not sick, right? So immediately providing that reassurance, we actually have a list of what you can say instead statements to family members. And so absolutely, we're training family members to say something really supportive, like that sounds like OCD talking. What can I do to help you ride this out without making it worse? Right. And so we are teaching them some alternative statements. And in the very beginning, we're encouraging them to use those specific statements mm-hmm. as they are adapting the work into what really feels true to the family dynamic. So we might ask at the very beginning of this family accommodation treatment, do you make decisions or complete tasks for your loved ones? What do you do to avoid conflict? with your loved ones. So that's a big one too. If we have someone with OCD becoming very angry when they're not getting the accommodation, right? So let's say a family member recognizes, oh no, like I am continuing this cycle 
But when they start getting yelled at, they might end up in a yelling war that just worsens the situation. And so these questions are really meant to just help us assess what is the current environment that is reinforcing OCD and what can we change up, right? So this really helps us provide a roadmap for changing up how family members are engaging with each other. And absolutely, like we had mentioned before, getting to a place of higher quality values-driven interaction, not anxiety-driven interactions. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's so important. And, you know, I was thinking as you were saying that OCD or not, there are a lot of folks in the OCD fam and beyond, (laughs) for sure, that struggle with avoiding conflict in their relationships, period. It is uncomfortable to have conflict. I don't think anyone's like, uh, even the people that you're like, no, I really think they enjoy arguing. It's like, well, I think maybe they they have their own justice driven, like this can be value driven, but it's still not a comfortable process to argue and fight and have conflict. And so OCD really can use that to its advantage. Like, yeah, because we don't want to ruffle things. I've already been so distressed and there can be so many different reasons to fill in the blank there. But it really then points out that not only do we have to expose ourselves to it and the response prevention is to not avoid it, but instead it really points and highlights the fact that communication is so important when we're having this, both around when we're starting treatment or we're starting, even if we haven't started treatment, facing the fact that OCD has been crashing the party here. Communication around that is going to be so important, right? And so that really brings us into this point about how can we utilize communication, especially if it's already avoiding conflict. Again, not not unique to OCD for sure. But how would you say communication plays a role in the process of family accommodation and treatment at large? That's a great question. And just want to reinforce, absolutely, this is not a problem that is specific to OCD. It is so common that family members start disagreeing and arguing and all of a sudden a situation that is distressing becomes a nightmare and just both parties walk away in deceit and and just feeling emotional exhaustion. And so communication is critical here. I Often we'll hear family members saying that things become very contentious, right? So family members might be accommodating their loved one's OCD for various reasons, as we discussed, but they feel a lot of resentment. Mm -hmm. They feel anger. They feel very demoralized, Mm -hmm. right? And it's very easy for the entire family to feel extremely burnt out And we know that that increases vulnerability to engaging in really unhelpful ways, right? And it just makes it more likely that family members will be arguing and will be going back and forth, right? And it really makes it so that it feels very much that the family member and their loved one with OCD are at war. And like we said, we need to 
establish a very different dynamic here where we have folks united together. And so often when we get into the intervention phase where we're starting to say, all right, we're going to start pulling back that accommodation. We need to do some COVID heads, right? So, all right. So when John does not get the reassurance, he will probably start yelling, right, mom? So we're, we're all together and we're all discussing this. Okay, what are you going to do, right? Are you going to snap back? Are you going to walk away, right? So we do get into some emotion regulation techniques, and really teaching the whole family a different way of communicating and disengaging when emotions are running high so that we don't make the situation worse and end up reinforcing OCD. Right. And just like they are strong and and dealing with the distress and we know that they can champion through it because whether you accommodate or not, whether they engage in the compulsion or not, OCD is a hard, I'm just going to say hard-ass disorder to be dealing with, okay? Sometimes we use the crazy words. OCD goes everywhere. So I'm just like, you know what? Nothing's off limits. But in terms of you too, you're strong and you've been dealing with this for a long time. And so just as they're dealing and battling with the distress, it becomes, like we said before, that parallel process of you battling the distress of seeing your loved one so upset. They might say really painful, mean things. They may feel desperate. Imagine if you felt fight, flight or freeze over a situation and some desperation over a very bad thing could happen if I don't dot, dot, dot. And so you're going to be feeling the distress too. And that communication is going to be so key, whether it's giving the perimeters of why you're doing this or even just walking away. That's nonverbal communication. That's still communication, right? And also through this process, you highlighted a really important point. I often will say to folks when they come into my office, I will say, have you noticed maybe not in this building in particular, but in general in buildings, you walk in, there's like a fire escape plan, right? Kids, when they're in school, they're school age, they'll have these planned drills, right? And why do we practice and plan ahead for those kind of things? Because when we're in crisis, if there's actually a fire, right? If it's going off and there's actually a fire, we don't want to feel so pulled in every direction. We want to be able to go like, I know what to do, even though I'm feeling threat because I've practiced it. And so practicing ahead and planning ahead for those communications is important, but also even communicating in the beginning of like, hey, you're strong. I'm strong. This road, it's not going to be a cakewalk, but we're going to be able to do it. And not just changing your behavior. Without communicating, oh, because I don't want to give this reassurance to OCD, but saying like, hey, we're going to be practicing this and we love you so much and we know you're so strong and we are too, that we can get through this. We're Mm -hmm. not going to respond in that same way. It'll build a little anxiety for your loved one, but we also want to be intentional about communicating like we're going to be intentional on our focus of loving you, not OCD. And that way it doesn't feel like this whole bait and switch because let me tell you, that doesn't go well when we just start changing things and they're like, what? You know, because they've already been living such this distressed life and now tenfold, like things are changing around them. So it's important to be able to have that communication too. Yeah, and that's really why 
We have these multifamily groups that involve the patient who is usually going through individual ERP at the clinic and their family members in the group, right? So that is the key, the transparency, right? The fact that every behavior plan that we're making is ideally something that everyone is agreeing on, right? Because as we know, without the patient with OCD being on board, even it's okay, a little reluctantly, given this person knows it's going to be really difficult and I'm not going to get what I feel I need in the moment. We need everyone on board so that we can come up with that cope ahead plan and have family members empowering each other. Just like you said before, everyone's saying to each other, this is really, really hard, right? I'm feeling it. You're feeling it. How can we ride this out? And knowing that when needed, when tension is really escalating, sometimes it is best to walk away, right? And everyone knows like that is what's going to happen. Very different from just, you know, you're, you're leaving your family member in the room and the person who's left in the room is saying, what just happened? Right. right. So Don't it, you care about me? I've been abandoned. Yeah. Yes. But the idea is, yeah, like everyone's in on it, right? This is in no way like family members are sneakily starting to pull back, leaving their loved ones with OCD in the lurch. So it's very much a collaborative family agreed on plan of action. Yeah. And I like how you're talking about that behavior plan, the cope ahead plan, which is a great way of thinking about it too. I like that framing. And one of the examples of this that can be really helpful, because sometimes people are like, okay, I, I get it. I'm following. But what does that look like? Well, it'll literally look like sometimes just making a behavior contract. And you've talked a bit about, and I know you guys use this in your groups as well, about behavioral contracting. And so can we talk about what would behavioral contracting in this kind of cope ahead plan and, and planning for the ERP exposures, what would that look like? Yeah. So I first want to say in preparing for the multifamily OCD group at the OCD Center, I read up on the work of the amazing Dr. Barbara Van Noppen, mm -hmm. and she had done a lot of great research looking at getting the family on board, and she had come up with this behavior contract. And so we use a variation of this every week in group. Ideally, we're having family members writing it out. So we're giving them little worksheets where we are going through each item. But as the groups go on, this is becoming just part of every session where we're talking it out and we're coming up with the plan of action. So for example, we are first identifying the target behavior, right? So reassurance seeking, for example. So this is the target OCD behavior that is involved in a lot of accommodation and we are going to do something about it, right? So we are then very clearly identifying what is the specific accommodation and how are family members responding, mm -hmm. right? For example, let's say Molly is reassurance seeking of her husband, Many, many times a day, uh, it could be upwards of 20 times a day asking for reassurance. And let's say this is more of a health or, or illness concern. You know, So asking her husband, does this look okay? Do I look okay? I'm coughing a lot. What do you think this is? And the husband 
giving that reassurance every time, right? So we're identifying how does this look, right? So the husband might be verbally giving reassurance if they're home together, responding to a text message, if he's away at work or a phone call. And we are then identifying the specific goal. So eliminating reassurance seeking, Mm -hmm. which we often do through a gradual process. And then the contract, right? So the game plan, essentially the alternative way of the family member responding to the requested accommodation. So in this specific example, the reassurance seeking. We are saying, okay, right now Molly's asking for 20 times of reassurance a day. We're going to limit this to three times a day, right? And so Molly, of course, is on board. And at this point, all parties have gone through psychoeducation. Molly's doing ERP. Husband understands what that is. And so the idea is, all right, Molly, you're going to get three reassurances a day. And so that means three reassurance coupons, right? And that might actually be like a paper coupon. And after you use two coupons, you get a warning from your husband that you've got one left. And we're going to monitor that progress with a chart up on the fridge, right? So every time you're getting reassurance, we're marking it down for that day. And you're only getting up to three, mm-hmm. right? The reward could be a trip to Molly's favorite coffee shop if she sticks to the contract of asking for reassurance no more than three times in a day for five days, right? So the charting comes in handy, right? Within the contract, we are also discussing what Molly's husband will do if she's asking for more reassurance, right? So, of course, that gets into the whole cope-ahead communication system, Mm -hmm. teaching the husband, this is what you will be saying instead of giving reassurance and we're walking it out in session. And often we're encouraging them to actually write out the game plan. And the idea is that we are going to keep using this plan and modifying it until Molly is no longer seeking reassurance, right? And so if Molly is successful with three reassurance coupons, the first week we can go down to two, the second week, and then one. And then sometimes we'll say you've got one a week, right? And of course, we know that It is often not a very straightforward process, right? And we know that new stressors that come up and there's troubleshooting to be done. But this is just an example of a specific behavior contract. And we work on it together. So it's very collaborative. And so by the end of that session, Molly is ideally on board with it. The husband is on board with it. And the beauty of the multifamily group is we've got a whole group understanding and, and sometimes we'll have other group members providing some assistance. We often hear, I can't think of a reward, right? This is, there's nothing that I can think of that I want. And so it's really fun to get the whole group involved. And yes, so we, so the behavior contracts, those are integral to the work that we do. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I I talk with families and couples and friends about this because in pediatric cases, we really emphasize the use of the reward system. It can be really helpful. Right. But for any of us that are now grown adults, right, like at at what point did we age out of like a good job for your hard work? And it's hard work. Right. It's it kind of just becomes the expectation like 
you're not going to get rewarded. And in this example that you were talking about, Christine, it was between two spouses, right? And so, and some people, y'all, I know you fam. I know some of you are going like, I can get coffee whenever I damn well please. And it's like, okay, then coffee is not the thing. That's not the point. The point is finding something that can be rewarding. If your world has shrunk down to, I can't get out, but I would love a, a latte or whatever, this is Starbucks or pizza or whatever, whoever's making what, then you are kind of reliant on somebody else being willing to go and get different things for you. And that can end up playing into accommodation as well. But the broader point is, like, find something rewarding and we still should be able to treat ourselves, right? Like, even as an adult. So sometimes it can be tricky because it's like, well, what can I do that they wouldn't just go do for themselves if they wanted? But there's always something. More quality time. It doesn't even have to be something that costs money. And it's not something that we're holding hostage, you guys. It's not something that's like, nope, unless you do perfect on this ERP and use only the three tickets, you won't get the quality time. Like we don't, it's not about shaming. It's about adding in the extra support. It's that cherry on top. It's the well done. It's the gold star. And so find what your gold star is. You know, maybe for me, a gold star would be like, hey, why don't you get together with friends tonight? I'll put the kids to bed. The sexiest words ever. I'll put the kids to bed. You go have fun. I'm like, what? Because that's not something that I can just easily arrange or it might take a lot of work for me to arrange. And that would be like, wow, that's really cool. So sometimes... It might just be, it doesn't even have to cost money. I'm always brainstorming with families because money can be tight. It doesn't have to be something, but it can, it can. Maybe it's like, uh, oh, we don't get specialty coffees that often because it's cheaper to brew at home. So yeah, that would be a bonus treat. But the point is really finding the thing to make sure that you can reward the hard work because it's hard work. It's going to be hard work for them. And it's going to be hard work for you. And I'm like, hey, everybody can reward, right? Like we can, you can reward for doing the hard work of watching one struggle and triumph through this as well. Because it can be hard. We, we know we're pulling for them. We're cheerleading for them. But that still can be hard to see them in distress. So I think that reward piece is really, really important. Yeah. And I love the point that you made with rewards that might include higher quality time together. Right. And so just want to make a point. There's an example of a family. It was a, a woman with OCD who came to family group with her sister who had been doing a ton of accommodation. And at the start of group, they both said, what we really want is more sister time together. Yeah. And so that was part of the reward system. But it was also, of course, our desired outcome. And so over time, their time together with accommodation decreased and their sister time where they were doing fun things together really increased. Yeah, because you think of in that relationship too, like how long have their interactions been around OCD and not just genuinely getting to enjoy the relationship they have with each other? And they're coming again out of love, dealing with this, but being able to transform that into actually quality time that's not about OCD. It can just be us getting our nails done. It could be going to see a movie. It could be going for a hike. It could be so many different things. And so, yeah, it's it's a really neat and special way to look at rewarding as well. And so, and, and again, it doesn't mean like we don't have sister time unless you earn it. It's like, all right, come on now. Like we want to just add a little frosting to an already <laughs> 
hopefully good foundation of a relationship when we're doing that. Yeah. And so when we're talking about setting up these contracts and we're talking about getting into the mode of reducing family accommodation, it can be hard. Not only can be, it is. Let's just say it. It is hard. And so this is where it can be so important to have support with a treatment team, with other people in your life that you can lean into when you need to cry about it so that you're not like on, on your loved one, right? But can we talk about that process of really stopping the cycle of accommodation and, and some of the support and resources available for the fam? Yeah. And so a huge key is collaboration, right? So collaborating with the ERP therapist, the family group co-leaders, collaborating with each other and really systematically decreasing that family accommodation. And absolutely, this does not happen overnight. And in no way would we ever say, oh, there's like 15 forms of accommodation happening. By next week, we're getting rid of all of them, right? That would be completely overwhelming for everyone. Right. Right. But we are asking the family members to be working on modeling for their loved ones with OCD that they are changing their behaviors, right? And that they are doing this to show how much they love their their son, daughter, wife, partner, sister, right? We are doing this out of love. And so being very vulnerable with each other is important, right? And yeah. teaching the family members you can model brave behavior in dealing with your own anxiety and uncertainty. And sometimes this means the family members having their own therapists, mm -hmm. their own support systems. Self-care is a huge part of this, yeah. right? Talk about self-care all the time. Because how could we be asking anyone to be standing up and doing something courageous that feels terrifying in the moment if they are burned out? Yeah. So that's a huge thing. And really just having those family members uh, consistently practice those communication strategies that we've discussed and coming up with a plan for also responding when family members are becoming angry with each other. Yeah, great points. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I think a lot of family members feel guilt or even more broadly, they feel shame. Some of the ways that I differentiate guilt and shame is guilt is I did something bad, you know, oops. Shame is I am bad. And it can contribute when we stop to take care of ourselves. We go to take a date night. And you think of all the different things that your particular loved one struggles with for their OCD. Maybe you haven't had a night off in a really long time. We need respite. We need to be able to recharge. We need to be able to breathe and have our own support system too. And a lot of times I will hear from folks, oh, I feel guilty. They, they're struggling so much with this. They're struggling. Whether you're there or not, they are struggling so much, but so are you. And so if we're going to be their cheerleader, if we're going to help them with this new learning, and we also are doing the work of new learning ourselves in our responses, then we have to be able to take that break. We have to be able to focus on ourselves. Maybe it's like, well, I'm going to get a hair appointment and it's going to cause a chasm of whatever. Oh, well, this is what life is about. And it's not to diminish like, yeah, that's going to be hard. But it's like, get your hair did, woman. 
Like, do it. Because honestly, like, what are we never going to get our hair done again because of OCD? It's another way that you just see how insidious OCD can be when it takes over relationships. And it does. It doesn't only take over the sufferer. It takes over relationships because we are relational beings. And so what matters to us? Those relationships. Where does OCD strike? In relationships. Imagine that. So it, it really does have an impact. Can you give us some examples to help differentiate what's direct reassurance and what's indirect? Because I know a lot of families, when they're learning about it, they're like, crap, I've been reassuring. And now I'm afraid I'm reassuring all the time. And what if I'm doing it indirectly and I didn't even realize it? And they can feel a lot of distress around that. And so uh, granted, I know brains like to lock onto these concrete examples. These are a few examples. Again, they can be as wide and vast and as creative as the brain of the person thinking them. But we're going to talk through some of those indirect forms of reassurance. Yeah, definitely. So direct reassurance is answering a specific question, right? So with a response such as, don't worry, it won't happen. That's perfectly clean. You didn't do anything wrong. You would never do that. You're okay. I'm okay. Everything's okay, right? And so answering that question pretty directly. Indirect reassurance is a bit trickier. And so an example might be a patient texting mom simply to say, hi, and getting that indirect reassurance that she is safe simply because she texts hi back, right? So this might be a patient who knows I'm not supposed to be asking mom if she's okay. I can't get that reassurance, but, you know, OCD makes people feel really desperate at times, right? So, but if I indirectly make sure she's responding to my text, then I'll feel better. I'll know that she's okay. In group just a couple of weeks ago, we had a patient really targeting reassurance seeking specifically in relation to the family's pets, right? The patient was getting a lot of intrusive thoughts that she might have poisoned them accidentally or hurt them when they were playing. And she knew she was not allowed to be asking for reassurance regarding the pet's health. Uh, But she did, and we're really proud of her for acknowledging this. She did tell us that throughout the week, she might say, hey, mom, what was Daisy off to you today? You know, what was uh, what was the day like, right? What were some things that Daisy was doing? And mom was just, you know, quickly responding, oh, you know, Daisy, she got up, she ate food, we went on a walk, she played, and didn't even realize that she was providing that indirect reassurance by telling her daughter that Daisy had a pretty typical day. The daughter got that indirect reassurance that Daisy was feeling fine that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great point. And you know, what I will say, because I I I know some folks out there are going to be going, oh my gosh, like, I can think of an example with my loved one where maybe I did that. And sometimes we can get stuck in our own mind, like, oh my gosh, did I reassure? And am I indirectly reassuring? And I think once people learn, I've found a lot of times once people learn about family accommodation, They want to change things perfectly for their loved one because they love their loved one so much, right? And so they can almost get caught in this, oh my gosh, am I reassuring? Am I reassuring? Am I reassuring? And that's where, again, because this can be tricky and it can be hard, we got to give ourselves 
within that self-care, we got to give ourselves some grace. You know what? Sometime we might indirectly reassure, okay? The process isn't about having a perfect score each time. The process is about learning to sniff that out and be able to talk with our loved one, not their OCD. And so sometimes you might accidentally engage in it. They might accidentally engage in it. Sometimes they might purposely engage in it. Sometimes you might personally and you'll feel so bad because you know you shouldn't, right? Blah, 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 blah. Give yourself some grace. You're a human being and you're trying, okay? The, the goal is to keep trying, to not let that mistake or that misstep define this entire process of all the good that you're doing in your new learning. It's going to happen, okay? So give yourself some grace there. And also another reason why it's so helpful to have a team. And so whether that's your co-parent, whether that's your partner, whether that's another roommate or being in contact with some of your roommate's family members and you guys can collaborate on this and also commiserate when you need to without the client, you guys can just debrief and have those moments. But this is where working with a treatment team can just be so impactful. And I love the idea of the group that you're mentioning. You guys have a group through Northwell. so. For anybody living in the state of New York, that sounds like an awesome group to participate in because it does make a difference when you are like, I am in such a crippling place and I feel so distraught over how my role may have participated here with my loved one's distress. Having other families being like, girl, I got you. We were there and seeing that they're not there and having that encouragement from people that are all in the trench with you. I mean, if you look around, there is a party going on in this trench. We are better together and we're here. You're not alone in this. And so having that treatment team, having that support system is going to be so important. Absolutely. And in regards to that family group, right, when I first created this group at the OCD Center about four and a half years ago, my intention was for it to be a five or six session group where we're doing psycho-ed, we're teaching how to do behavior contracts and very didactic focused and, and that's it. And I thought to myself, families would not even want to be sticking around for longer. And I have to say, Nicole, it is incredible that over time, I realized that this group becomes such a supportive community and that we have had families who meet their anti-accommodation goals and they want to stick around in group. And they really value that weekly opportunity to come together to support newer families, to really take folks under their wing. And just like you said, say I was there too. And it is incredible to think that we typically have families who we are seeing in group for over a year at times yeah. and, and know that this path is not linear. And we know that there are often lots of obstacles and roadblocks, but it's really evolved into a community where we're really at a point where it's about teaching psycho-ed, learning the skills, using the skills, and then maintaining so that's really the progression that we see in a group, which is amazing. I love that. I love that. So if folks listening happen to be in the state of New York, can you tell us where can we find more information about you? And I will link all of this because I know some of y'all are driving, some of y'all are like, oh, I can't write this down right now. 
So I'm going to link this all on this episode's blog. But where can we find more information about what you're doing, Christine, and anything else that you would have upcoming that would be helpful? We'd love to hear about it. Yeah, absolutely. So like we said before, the clinic is the Northwell Health OCD Center under the incredible directorship of Dr. Anthony Pindo. And we are on Long Island in New York. And we are always taking on new patients. Anyone who is interested in becoming a patient at the OCD Center with the possibility of also engaging in family group and the other, I think we're at like 12 or 13 weekly groups at this point, can email us. So email is the best way to get in touch. And the email is OCD Center. That's one word. So OCD Center at northwell.edu. So N-O-R-T-H-W-E-L-L dot E-D-U. So OCD Center at northwell.edu. At that point, a staff member would get in touch regarding our screening process. So the process is a phone screen with the possibility of an intake and then treatment in the form of individual therapy, medication management, and group therapy. Right. So that's that's a Very helpful and important distinction, too. So the group that you're running, if you're living in New York and you think, I might be able to benefit from this, and it doesn't mean you have to be on medication if you call or anything like that. These are just the array of services that you guys offer. And so that will be a screening process. And then you get to participate in that conversation and ask about the group if you're interested. I will say, too, for the international and outside of New York, and this is not a treat group, but this is a family support group. I know Chris and Liz Tronson. I want to say it's at least once a month, if not twice a month. But I want to say it's at least once a month. Run a Zoom group, too, for families to be able to come in and just be able to shoot the shit about what is going on. (laughs) Right. Like they can address that, too. And I'm pretty sure that because that is not a treatment group, you do not need to be located in California, right, where the co-leaders are are residing. So that is an excellent resource. We actually have a whole bunch of resources for families outside of the Northwell Health Group, and that is first on our list. Great. Is that on Northwell's website? It is not, but that is a great idea. We may want to put that on the website. We're actually in the process of revamping our website. So great timing. Thank you. Would you be open to emailing me that and I could list some of those resources or would you rather them go through Northwell to get that? Yeah, I'll start with emailing that list to you and then we'll work with the IT team to see if we can get those resources up on the website too. Great. So so we will post some of those other suggestions for folks outside of New York. And again, Northwell runs the treatment group, so it's as a part of the treatment plan. But again, as we've talked about, it can be so incredibly helpful to have that treatment team in place. And so in New York, that is a resource. The group that meets via Zoom International, you can be anywhere in the world. It might not be your preferred time. I'm sorry, folks over in parts of Asia. They're like, gosh, this is early Australia, too. Yeah. But I would just say that's worth checking out and you can check out the blog post where I will also link some of the other resources Christine is talking about here. In closing, Christine, and I know that you guys, obviously, we've been talking a lot about ERP, 
Something that I've just been learning about more recently in terms of evidence-based treatment has been inference-based CBT. I was just curious, do you run into or have you done any training around that and how that would fit in with family accommodation? Really great question. So I am still in the process of learning how to implement this therapy. And I think it's a really great point. I think a next step would be applying family accommodation work to inferential CBT. So I think that would really be a next step. Cool. Yeah, it's been fascinating learning about. Also, would it be fair to say, because I'm hearing, and I I tend to really link these, not that ACT owns this, but Christine has mentioned value-driven living, value-driven purposes, and wanting to engage in activities that are value-driven, relationships that are value-driven. And that tends to make me think of ACT as well, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. And so it sounds like, I don't know if that's like a whole wrapped up piece, but I know in particular, sometimes folks are seeking treatment with an ACT lens. And so would it be fair to say that there are pieces of ACT 2 applied through that ERP process at Northwell? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that we all really believe that ACT and ERP are so well intertwined and that when we're looking at ACT concepts as encouraging the ability to tolerate that distress and to be mindful without engaging in compulsive or avoidant behaviors, it's really so impactful. And so the goal is always I'm tolerating this distress so that I can live in values. And if you think about it, that is the approach that we would be teaching to the patient with OCD and to their family member as well. who we're asking, stop accommodating. Yeah. Excellent. 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 Well, thank you so much, Christine. I think this has been really, really helpful. And if you have any final thoughts, please feel free to share them. But at the very least, I think we've had a really nice succinct and comprehensive review of family accommodation because it does show up 97%. That's like as close to perfection as you can get in the research world, right? Like it's going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be there and sometimes in indirect ways, but often too, we start to be able to spot and I spy the, the direct accommodations and it's a process. And so I really, really appreciate you taking the time And just really helping explain, I think, in a really accessible way, what is happening when family accommodation is showing up to the party and really just the hope that's available for folks to be able to not only make progress for their loved ones to make progress in their OCD treatment, but for you to get your value-driven relationship with your loved one back. And so I love that. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Nicole. It was a pleasure to be on the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. It's just great. And I have to say, never, never has an intrusive thought segment been easier to create because, Christine, thank you. You gave us so many practical tools that we can apply today. And this segment, my intrusive thought segment, is all about application. What can we do with this information right here, right now? And I love that. And so to put a bow on our conversation, because remember, fam, I am here in Florida for our extended Christmas. Tis the season for all the bows. But also, I just think it is helpful when we can point to and highlight these really awesome resources. So Christine had mentioned many ideas, but it really starts with us understanding OCD's playbook. So getting that psychoed, 
That is so important. Being on the same page. And you know what, fam? You're already working on that right now. You're listening to this episode. We are learning together. So give yourself a pat on the back because if you're like, I don't have the energy to do things, but you're listening right here, right now, you're doing it. You go. Give yourself a pat on the back because you're seeking, you're learning, and some more great resources that I'll point you to in addition to, of course, Northwell's OCD Center with Dr. Christine Durso includes the International OCD Foundation at iocdf.org and icbt.online. And guess what? If you're a parent, there's resources. If you're a child, there's resources. Sibling? Roommate? Teacher? Dating? Married? Co-parent? There's resources. We have the research. We have the data. So lean into the learning. And if you're like, I can't remember what I learned, but I know I was learning things, head on over to OCDFamilyPodcast.com because this episode's blog is going to have the links to everything we're reviewing here. Also, build your team. I'm a therapist, right? So I'm totally going to say the therapist-y thing here, but lean into a qualified therapist trained in treating OCD. But also, I'm not your therapist. And you know what? Not everyone on your team needs to be a therapist. Your team can include family members, a coach, a teacher, your friend Cheryl or Charlie, who you barely talk to more than twice a year. But you know what? You still send them funny TikToks every now and then. And when you do hang out, it's like not even one day has passed by. Build your team. You're strong, but there's even greater strength in numbers. And it is not weakness to say, hey, today was hard. Hey, I just need to vent. Hey, I need a night off where nothing I talk, see, think, or do has to do with OCD. Build your team. And if you're at a loss, if you're like, I don't even know, I feel like I have no one, then lean into the incredible OCD community because I have to tell you, There are so many fierce advocates, whether they have lived experience or loved ones that they cherish and adore with lived experience. And they're out there with transparency and courage and paving a way forward for folks. You're not alone. And then lastly, remember those questions that Christine reviewed with us? I think all the questions were really incredible. So, so helpful and really just great. But if I had to pick just one, I'm not sure what the conditions would be where it was like, nope, Nicole, just one, only one. You can only pick one. But if I had to pick just one, then I would encourage you to think about this. If my loved one didn't have OCD, would I be doing fill in the blank? If the answer is yes, then by all means, continue forward. Pasco, collect $200. I mean, just between you and me, I'm not really the best person to follow advice for Monopoly because if you know, you know. But I think you get my drift. If the answer is no, though, no, I wouldn't do this for my brother, my sister, my neighbor, my godfather, my cousin, my bestie, or anyone else. I do it for this person because their OCD is so hard. Then pause. Make a note. Be it physical, like I'm writing it down, type it out on your phone, or just a mental note even. And do yourself a favor this week, fam. Talk to your loved one about it. I know that's scary. I know that's uncomfortable. And I'm not even saying that you need to make a radical plan. I'm not saying that you have to change anything at all in this moment. I just want to challenge you to talk to your person. Communicate. This might look like saying, you know, I want to help you so much and I'm trying. But I just realized all this that I'm doing, saying, avoiding, participating in, fill in the blank. If it weren't for OCD... I wouldn't be doing it. And it just makes me wonder, 
Where else is OCD butting in here? What else is it stealing away from us? Maybe this is grabbing a paintbrush and painting this elephant in the room all the colors because here's the thing. We kind of know we're allowing or doing this thing here or avoiding or turning a blind eye or just kind of, mm, if I don't see it, I don't have to tell. Like we're standing our ground in so many ways, but maybe we're just avoiding this one thing here. And that one thing there is still a whole animal. So maybe it's saying, maybe it's time we dealt with that. I'm scared, you're scared, but let's talk. This is going to look different for different people, and that's okay. In fact, I would even say that's necessary. Because what works for you or works for me or works for Cheryl or Charlie, hey, support crew, we see you. (laughs) It's going to be as incredibly unique as we are. But challenge yourself, fam, to one, learn, two, find your crew, and three, communicate. Because just like Christine said, oh, the incredible progress that can be made when our skeletons go from dancing one step forward, two steps back, to the fam dancing a new dance to a value-driven, life-given rhythm. Family, there's nothing better. So let's do this. We don't have to make a resolution. We don't have to complete a vision board. Let's just commit to learning to dance and reclaiming our lives. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD family podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like Dr. Durso and me hanging with our family tree. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.